Tonight, straight from the source, Donald Trump formally challenging the decision in Maine to remove him from its primary ballot based on the 14th Amendment's insurrectionist ban. And we expect other legal challenges from his team any minute now. Plus, a senior leader of Hamas killed in an explosion near Beirut, Lebanon. Hezbollah warning Israelis this kind of action inside Lebanon's borders won't be tolerated. Could this lead to another front in Israel's war? And Claudine Gay is officially out as Harvard's president. Her resignation following mounting accusations of plagiarism that began after her controversial testimony on Capitol Hill about anti-Semitism on Harvard's campus. Caitlin Collins is off tonight. I'm Brianna Keeler, and this is The Source. Tonight, Donald Trump's legal team appealing the decision by Maine's Secretary of State to remove the former president from the state's primary ballot. Trump, of course, was also booted off the primary ballot in Colorado, and we're still waiting on that appeal. We're going to have more on this breaking news in just a moment, but it's all unfolding just 13 days from the Iowa caucuses, where Republican voters will have their first say about who they want their party's nominee to be. And if you think these court battles are getting in the way of Trump's quest to win back the White House, Think again. Not only did he nail down an endorsement today from the second highest ranking Republican in the House, Majority Leader Steve Scalise, but polls show his base is growing more loyal as the criminal charges stack up. According to a Washington Post University of Maryland poll, GOP voters are now more sympathetic to those who stormed the Capitol on January 6th and more likely to absolve Trump of responsibility for the attack than they were right after the insurrection. Joining me now, we have senior political correspondent for The New York Times and CNN uh, political analyst Maggie Haberman, Trump's former White House communications director Alyssa Farah Griffin, and former Trump campaign advisor David Urban. Welcome to all of you. We are officially here in a presidential election year now. Maggie, tell us, how does Steve Scalise's endorsement of Trump and also the support of almost all of the House GOP leadership play into his strategy for the primaries? Look, it just creates this sense of momentum, uh, and you're going to see this, I think, going forward. He's going to highlight the endorsements that he's gotten. They're going to point to the breadth of support that he has within the party. It is really striking, as considering where things were once upon a time. And so, you know, I, it, again, it just makes it harder for anybody who is trailing him. And this is a pretty small primary field, Brianna, at this point, but it makes it very hard for anybody who is trailing him to break through. It, it just creates another news cycle that is all about Donald Trump for Republicans primary voters. Now, does this help him enormously in a general election? Not really, but it does help right now. And Alyssa, I mentioned that new Washington Post poll. It shows Republican support for people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. It's actually grown, and so has their loyalty to Trump in the past three years. How do you see a conviction affecting that support? Well, listen, this poll is obviously a direct result of elected Republicans and Donald Trump himself lying about the events of January 6th, uh, spouting conspiracy theories around it. So no doubt uh, the American public's position has changed on it. Um, I think that a conviction, while the polling suggests could hurt Donald Trump if he already has the nomination, it's going to be much harder to get rid of him. Like, this is a very short process that we have. I don't think most think that we're going to see conviction in any of these cases ahead of the convention. And I think the likelihood that he would be dropped is incredibly low. For those who want to stop Donald Trump, if that is your aim, the time to do it is in the primary, and that window is rapidly closing. Yeah, it certainly is. And David, if we 
get into our Wayback Machine and we go back 13 months, <laughs> I think we should remember, you know, Trump struggled to fill his Mar-a-Lago ballroom for his campaign kickoff. Pundits were wondering whether Governor Ron DeSantis might eventually eclipse Trump. Was there anything besides the narrative of legal persecution that he put out there that rallied the party back to him? You know, that's a really good question, Brianna. I, I, I'm not I'm not quite sure, and I, I know that answer. I think that there was a vacuum create, there was a, a, a complete vacuum, political vacuum, after Ron DeSantis did so successfully, uh, so successfully won his reelection in Florida. There was a big narrative. He was the, the next new, new thing. And then, you know, he said he wasn't going to run until his uh, his session was done in Florida. And so he kind of vanished from the headlines and, and there was a void left and, and uh, politics abhors a vacuum like nature. And and so, uh, you know, we had a, a, a indictment uh, charges in New York City, as you recall, quickly thereafter. And, and that became the news. And the news kept going and going. And Donald Trump was his front, front page center above the fold in every paper in America. And it just kept propagating and growing, right? So I, I do think that that, that, that narrative is, is uh, can you defeat upon itself and strengthen him as, as the polling suggests. That's great in a primary. I don't know how it's going to work in a general election. Alyssa, what do you think? Is this the only thing that has fueled him, or do you think it's something else? Listen, I think Urban hits on something important, which was that New York indictment coming first, I think kind of paved the way for the other indictments, the two, the two Department of Justice, Fulton County, much more serious indictments for Trump to be able to message them as this is all political, this is all partisan. The New York one kind of set the stage to sort of uh, sow some doubt in, in what has come since then. And Donald Trump is a bit of a, a master of pivoting bad media cycles in his favor. Um, he's done that. If he, if the attention's going to be on him, he's going to find a way to work it in his favor with his base. And to, you know, the point of the Scalise endorsement, he has elected Republicans solidly in his pocket. So that means he has an echo chamber and amplifiers who are going to go out and back him. He's got the vast majority of Republican endorsements that you can have. Um, and as I said, he's, he's really paving his way to the nomination just shortly after Super Tuesday. Maggie, looking beyond the nomination, if Trump does have a lock on it, is he ready? Is he positioned for a general election? In what respect? In terms of his appeal, in terms of how people are responding to him. Oh, I see what you're saying. Look, this has been actually something that's been discussed a lot today because of a piece by your colleague, Isaac Dover focusing on how the Biden folks are going to train their attention on Trump going forward in the coming weeks. I think we all forget that we see a lot of Donald Trump because we cover this, and Republicans see a lot of Donald Trump because it's their primary. The general election electorate has not seen that much of Donald Trump. He has not been on Twitter. He does not hold press conferences. He does not really do media interviews the way he used to. He is not on Fox News the way he used to be. And so there hasn't been a lot of Donald Trump in in the public eye the same way. There will be once he is in a general election. He's been trying to, you know, massage his, his position on abortion to be you know, essentially everywhere on it. He's the person who uh, is most responsible, other than Mitch McConnell, for Roe v. Wade ending with the appointment of Supreme Court justices and a supermajority. And yet, because Donald Trump once upon a time uh, was pro-abortion rights, in it, he is seen by a segment as moderate, and I think he's going to continue to try to push that. I don't think that his 
constant discussion about uh, you know the election and his lies about the election and his claims about January 6, 2021 and the attack on the Capitol that day. I don't think that that's especially helpful to him in a general election, and I don't think his advisors think it is either, but I think they are going to deal with that when they get to it. Yeah, David is certainly nodding yeah. along with you uh, to that, Maggie. Yeah, well, Brian, Br- 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 yeah. go on. I, I was, yeah, I was just going to say, you know, um, Joe, Joe Biden always says, you know, don't judge me against the almighty, judge me against the alternative. And I think that's what a lot of Republicans and just and, and voters in general in these polls are doing right now. They look at the border. They see a very porous border. Uh, they see crime on the rise in cities. They they see brackets around their 401ks and they're they're unhappy. They're they're disaffected and they and they yearn, believe it or not, for those days during the Trump administration when when there was a low unemployment, inflation was non-existent and uh and immigration was, was the border was secured. And so I think they're looking at that nostalgically right now. We'll see if that plays forward. And, and as Maggie said, if people focus on that, the campaign get people to focus on that during the election cycle rather than, uh, than 2020 and uh, January 6th, that, that'll be the challenge. And if yeah. I could if I could just add, Brianna, I think what's remarkable is six in 10 Americans did not want do not want the Trump versus Biden rematch. Yet we're careening into it. Donald Trump in most polls narrowly beats Joe Biden, but not by a significant margin. Whereas if someone else like a Nikki Haley were, were to get the Republican nomination, she beats Joe Biden by as many as 16 points. There's a disconnect between the party who wants to beat Joe Biden, but then who they're heading toward nominating Donald Trump. So let's listen to this, because when Trump is speaking to his supporters, it's often to frame this election in really the most apocalyptic terms. Let's listen. 2024 is our final battle. It's our final battle. This is the final battle. It's our final battle. It's our final battle. The final battle. Remember, it's our final battle. What is he telegraphing, Maggie, when he is talking about this in these terms. What what is he telegraphing here? His sec- uh, what a second term, Look, he- a potential second term would be. Sure. I mean, I think this is the the underlying question with what he's been doing for a couple of years now. He has been speaking, as have a lot of his supporters and a lot of uh, folks on the right, in increasingly apocalyptic terms, describing essentially the country as on fire, describing everything as in tumult, describing everything as terrible, describing everything as the the ultimate fight to, you know, to take the country back, quote unquote. Um, You are going to hear that a lot. Now, what he has said previously, in addition to that language, and he's been saying it all year, is, you know, some version of I am your retribution. He has made very clear that he is going to uh, use his time in office to go after President Biden and his family. He is going to radically change the federal government. Uh, He is going to erode the uh, post-Watergate norm between the Justice Department um, and the White House. I mean, among other things, he has a very radical plan for immigration. All of this fits into his description of the country, you know, in in turmoil. I think to, to to Dave Urban's point, there are a lot of people who are looking at specific policy aspects. They look at the border right now, they look at inflation, and they are very upset, and they are hearing him cast it in these terms as some kind of, you know, incredibly grim match. Um, You know, I think you are going to hear him continue to say that. What he will do with that presidency is not necessarily what that means in terms of final battle. I think his view of what he wants to do with the White House, yes, there are policy pieces, but there are all, there is also a payback component for him personally. Yes, he makes it very clear. Um, David, here we are. I mean, less than two weeks to the Iowa caucuses. Is there anything, in your opinion, that Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis can do to really change 
much before Iowa and New Hampshire? You know, uh, Brianna, I, I don't think there is, right? But, you know, we always, it, it, that's why we have elections and not polls, right? And caucus, you know, polls even. They, people people go out and they vote. And, and remember in 2012, I don't, I don't know if this is going to be the case, but uh, Rick Santorum, I was helping a guy back then who, who no one thought stood a chance. And, and lo and behold, he came from nowhere to win the Iowa caucuses, right? So, so it, it could happen. I think it's highly unlikely it's going to happen. I think that after Iowa, you're going to see great pressure on, one or two of these candidates that are in there, both DeSantis and Haley, to get out if they don't, you know, kind of score someplace in the high 20s. I think there's going to be a great deal of pressure if they're still polling it. They end up at 16% in the polls, and they end up with 16% of the vote share on the, on the caucus night. It's going to be a big push to get out. Yeah, and we'll be looking for that. Uh, David, thank you so much. Alyssa, Maggie, thank you so much to all of you for being with us this evening. Thanks for having me. In the meantime, former President Trump is now formally challenging the decision to kick him off of the primary ballot in Maine based on the 14th Amendment's insurrectionist ban. This is just one of a growing number of 14th Amendment cases working their way through the courts in several states. Former federal prosecutor, now CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig, is with us now to talk about this. Ellie, in summary, what is the argument that Trump is making when it comes to Maine? So, Brie, I just read the brief. It's short. It's sort of short on detail. But essentially, the first part of his argument is he says, I was not engaged in insurrection. And then he offers us this sort of list of even if procedural arguments to wit. He says, first of all, it's not up to the states. It's up to Congress to tell us how this works. Then he says, but even if it's up to the states, Maine, in this case, they did not follow their own procedures. The forms that I had to fill out didn't say anything about the 14th Amendment. Andy argues, the Secretary of State, she was biased and recused her and should have recused herself. Then he argues, even if Maine properly followed its procedures, I was not given proper due process. He argues this was a sort of abbreviated quasi-hearing and I wasn't given enough of the protections that you would need in a hearing like this. And then finally, he argues, even if all those things I just said are not true, the president does not count as an officer of the United States under the 14th Amendment using some sort of legalistic, linguistic gymnastics. So he's got a lot of different ways to win this. He's trying to create various avenues to victory here. And the challengers, it should be noted, have to win all of these in order to win on their, uh, on their motions. Well, that's a very good point. How, how strong are the arguments that he's making? Well, uh, I, my personal view is he did engage in insurrection, so I don't think that's very strong. It's one sentence in the brief. He just says, I did not engage in insurrection. I think the procedural arguments is where this will be resolved. I think when we see the higher courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court, take this up, they're going to answer these questions, which, by the way, we don't know. This is completely uncharted territory. I think the Supreme Court will answer first is it up to Congress, which has not acted about how the 14th Amendment should work, or is it up to the states? If it's up to the states, did they follow their own procedures and did they provide enough due process? So I do think ultimately this is going to be settled on those latter grounds, those procedural questions. I spoke with the main secretary of state today about the confusion that could result if she is successful. And here's what she said. If you send out ballots because it's state, as you said, that have his name on them and then later send out corrected ballots, that don't have his name on them, certainly there may be some instances where people turn in ballots that have his name or even cast their vote, even though they can't technically, for Donald Trump. What do you do then? 
you're engaging in a hypothetical that may not come to pass, especially because under Maine law, the Superior Court is required to issue a decision by January 17th. And indeed, it is widely expected that the U.S. Supreme Court may intervene in that time period. So worth noting, Bellows says, Ellie, that she is actually planning for that hypothetical, although she didn't reveal details of what that entails. Yeah. How much is writing on the Supreme Court weighing in before ballots are supposed to go out uh, some as soon as this month? Yeah, this is exactly why this case, more than any I can really think of in modern history, is crying out for the Supreme Court to get involved. I mean, Secretary Bellows said it's a hypothetical that might not come to pass. It's also a hypothetical that might well come to pass, in which case we will be thrust into chaos. And I agree with the secretary that this is, a, she seems to be calling for the Supreme Court of the United States to take this case. And I think they have to. This is a constitutional issue with enormous consequences where we just don't know the answer. And if the Supreme Court does not Take this case, you already nicely highlighted the chaos within Maine. Imagine the chaos now across all 50 states where some have thrown Donald Trump off, some have not. They're all doing it by different procedures. They're all arriving at different results. We really need the Supreme Court. And I think everyone seems to agree on this. We need the Supreme Court to do its job here. Certainly. Uh, Ellie, stay with us, if you will. Tonight, there's some new allegations of corruption against embattled Democratic Senator Bob Menendez. The New York lawmaker was already accused of using his powerful position to secretly aid the government of Egypt in exchange for bribes. Well, now he is accused of also taking bribes to help Qatar. Remember those gold bars that authorities say they found in his house? Well, apparently there are more. And prosecutors now say Menendez and his wife were also involved in an attempted cover-up after the feds raided their home. Menendez and his four co-defendants have already pleaded not guilty. His attorney tells CNN that Menendez acted, quote, entirely appropriately when it comes to Egypt and Qatar. So what makes this situation so concerning beyond a senator allegedly being a crook until his indictment, Menendez was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, holding an incredible amount of sway with access to national secrets. And by the way, he's still on that committee receiving classified briefings. Ellie is back with us now to talk about this. Uh, Ellie, can you just break down these new allegations for us? Yes. So, Bree, this is essentially the fourth set of allegations relating to Senator Menendez, relating to bribery and extortion, to taking cash and other benefits from people in order to deliver them official benefits. Two of them now relate to uh, lobbying on behalf of foreign corporations. Another relates to him trying to shut down a criminal case. And another relates to him trying to do special favors for a local businessman. And what makes this really powerful for prosecutors is in a situation like this, where you essentially have four different stories to tell, they tend to mutually reinforce one another with a jury. A jury is going to hear about all four of these, the same jury, and they're going to think, well, this is a pattern. This is someone who had a way of doing business. And the thing is, for prosecutors in a case like this, you only need to win one to get a guilty verdict, to get a conviction. That's largely going to drive any potential sentence here. If you're Bob Menendez, Senator Menendez here, you got to, again, like we were saying before, he's going to have to beat all four of these. And they do have a way of sort of propping one another up. So the indictment, in my view, just got stronger against him. Yeah, really stunning new allegations here. Ellie, thank you for being with us tonight. Thanks, Bray. All right. Just days before the first 2024 primary contest, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley take questions directly from Iowa voters in back-to-back -back events. The CNN Republican presidential town halls moderated by Caitlin Collins and Aaron Burnett are live Thursday starting at 9 p.m. 
One of the senior leaders of Hamas has been killed in an explosion near Beirut. Could this expand the war to Lebanon? Plus, it was the video that captured the attention of the world today. What we are learning now about the two planes that collided on a runway in Tokyo, killing five people even as hundreds of others miraculously survived. New tonight, a U.S. official telling CNN that Israel did, in fact, carry out a strike today in Lebanon that killed a senior Hamas leader. Earlier, a senior advisor to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu would not confirm but also did not outright deny that Israel was behind the incident. Israel has not taken responsibility for this attack, but whoever did it, it must be clear that this was not an attack on the Lebanese state. It was not an attack even on Hezbollah. 57-year-old Salah al was one of the most wanted men in the Middle East. The U.S. issued a $5 million reward for information about him back in 2015. Joining me now is CNN political and global affairs analyst Barack Ravid. Uh, Barack al was an incredibly significant figure within Hamas. Yes, good evening, Brianna. I think uh, this uh, um, operation that Israel conducted uh, in Beirut uh, earlier today is important not only because of Aruri, but because of the other people who were with him in his office in Beirut. Uh, and basically, the people who were assassinated today are all of Hamas's military commanders out of Gaza. So this uh, attack did not only uh, take Aruri out of the uh, field, it took uh, everyone who runs Hamas operations outside of Gaza, and therefore it was a very significant move. You've been reporting that Israel did not notify the United States in advance of the attack. How significant is that? Well, I think um, one of the reasons maybe that Israel did not notify uh, uh, the U.S. in advance was uh, that Israel maybe thought that the U.S. would have an issue with uh, uh, an attack in Beirut, very close to uh, Hezbollah headquarters, an attack that has we, you know, you have to say a big potential of increasing tensions along the northern Israel's northern border and in a, an extreme scenario could lead to a regional war, something that the U.S. wants to avoid. So the Israelis decided, this, from what I hear from Israeli officials, to notify the U.S. as the operation was taking place. And this is not something that just happened today and, you know, within one or two hours, this operation went uh, underway. This was weeks in planning, according to what Israeli officials are telling me. Brock, what does this strike mean for fears of a growing regional conflict? And also, what does it mean for any prospects of trying to secure the release of more hostages out of Gaza? Well, first, let's talk about the hostages. So uh, Hamas uh, notified both the Egyptian and Qatari mediators that it is suspending uh, the talks over a possible new deal to release uh, hostages. Um, this was like a first response from, from Hamas. And uh, Hezbollah uh, announced that it will retaliate for uh, this assassination. So we're looking at um, two situations where Hezbollah could retaliate and Israeli officials think it will and that it will do it through launching long-range missiles at Israeli cities like Tel Aviv and Haifa, something that, you know, Israel would have to to retaliate uh, again. And this could lead to this cycle that 
gets us to an escalation and to a regional war, which is very dangerous. Uh, on the other hand, some Israeli officials say that both the issue of the hostages and the issue of tensions on the border with Lebanon could actually, uh, that this uh, assassination could actually improve the situation because while in the immediate term it will escalate things, in the more interim it will basically send the message to Hezbollah and to Hamas leadership in Gaza that it's better off cooling off uh, tensions with Israel and going for uh, a hostage deal. I'm not sure I would agree with this Israeli assessment, but many Israeli officials feel that way. Very interesting. How precarious right now is the political situation for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, given you had the defeat this weekend of his judicial overhaul, and also the fact that there's waning support for funding, military aid funding of Israel among Democrats here in the U.S.? I think that uh, when you look at what happened today, uh, on the one hand, it was a big blow to Hamas. On the other hand, it was quite a big boost to uh, Netanyahu and his government. They were looking for almost three months for some sort of a you know, big win that they could show to Israeli public opinion. And I think they got it today. Uh, and although I'm not, I don't think this was the reason for killing el it is definitely uh, uh, an important side benefit that uh, Netanyahu uh, can use with his, not only his base, but Israeli public opinion uh, as a whole, that as you know, is not Netanyahu is not very popular in Israel these days with more than 70% of Israelis wanting to resign once the war is over. Barack Ravid, thank you for being with us and for sharing your reporting with us tonight. Thank you, good night. Harvard's president is out. Was it Claudine Gay's testimony on anti-Semitism or her ongoing plagiarism scandal that finally did her in? We'll discuss. Tonight, Claudine Gay's brief tenure as Harvard's president is over. She resigned after a firestorm of controversy thrust her into the national spotlight. At a congressional hearing last month, Gay and other university presidents were criticized for failing to explicitly say without equivocation that calls for the genocide of Jewish people constituted bullying and harassment on campus. The pressure on Gay intensified as an ongoing plagiarism scandal involving her academic writings revealed a growing list of violations and became the focus of a House congressional investigation. In a letter to the Harvard community, Gay wrote, quote, it has been distressing to have doubt cast on my commitments to confronting hate and to upholding scholarly rigor, to bedrock values that are fundamental to who I am, and frightening to be subjected to personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus. Joining me tonight, we have former communications director to Vice President Kamala Harris, Jamal Simmons with us, and also CNN political commentator Essie Cup. Uh, Essie, I do want to note here that sources tell CNN Gay actually made this decision to resign last week ahead of some new plagiarism allegations that emerged this week. What is your reaction to her resignation today? I think in light of everything that Harvard was facing, it was the right call um, from a PR perspective, right? There was a lot of incoming for Harvard, but also just because um, holding such an esteemed position and having such a difficult time saying the appropriate and correct things um, really put a spotlight on college campuses. And there is a scourge of anti-Semitism on college campuses today. That's 
not an invention of, of the right. That is something that has been acknowledged by the White House, by Democrats, by liberal academics, by media outlets, by Jewish groups. And so it's appropriate to cast an eye on this deep-rooted, deep-seated problem. Now, that said, the resignation of Claudine Gay and the earlier resignation of Liz McGillett-Penn does not solve this problem. And sort of the retaliatory nature of folks like Elise Stefanik wanting to score political points is also corrupting an already very difficult, very complicated problem. But that said, I think it was the right move. Jamal, what do you think? You know, if this is about uh, plagiarism, um, then I think this is a uh, this is something that she probably made the decision that was the best decision for her and for the university. My understanding is I, I saw it today in the Harvard Crimson, there were a couple of pieces that were written in the last, right before I guess the holiday. And one of them um, was from an undergraduate who was on the honor council who said that if a student would brought before the honor council, they would be disciplined. So that that's, from my understanding, talking to Harvard professors today, that's something that really drove, I think, the, this question that could she stay with authority in the position? So that that's real. But if you take that one, the, the tile of Claudine Gay and you kind of pull it back and look at this mosaic, there are a lot of African-American leaders tonight who feel like there is um, just a trend line that's very disturbing, that there's something happening when particularly black women are, are headed into academia and they're taking on positions of leadership. We saw what happened to Nicole Hannah-Jones down at UNC um, when she uh, tried to go there and she had her um, professorship taken away. We saw what happened to Kathleen McElroy at Texas A&M, Texas where she had to return to University of Texas because they rescinded her offer. They actually paid her a lot of money to, to make that go away. So there are people who feel like there's a trend that's happening, that the affirmative action case, um, um, the, 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 the venture capital fund that couldn't invest in um, women leaders, African-American women um, leaders who wanted to, to, to start companies. There, there are all these things that are happening in the American mosaic that are disturbing about DEI and whether or not we're gonna have people of color who are in the leadership of the country as we become a more diverse country. Yeah, and there are many things happening all at once in this case. I think it's easy to see that. We heard Gay Jamal reference personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus. And she's certainly heard, uh, I think, some of the rhetoric, uh, more rhetoric than we have heard about her as well. She mentioned that in her resignation letter. You have the Reverend Al Sharpton today saying, quote, President Gay's resignation is about more than a person or a single incident. This is an attack on every black woman in this country who's put a crack in the glass ceiling. But like I said, there's a lot going on here, right? There is, uh, I think, to any eye looking at what happened, you know, there is some wrongdoing here. So what do you think about what he is saying there? You know, Brianna, there's always wrongdoing, <laughs> right? I mean, um, when I started at the White House, I had to endure four or five days of, a, of, a, of an attack of op you know, op opposition research about some, some Twitter, some old tweets from when I started, you know, from 10 years ago that people tried to bring up. You know, there's always something. The question is, are people willing to to invest in, in new leaders. And so one of the things that happens is, is uh, I wrote a piece about this a couple of years ago called the 4% problem, which is about African-American leadership across sectors. And one of the things when I talk to, when I talk to social scientists about this is they call it the prototypicality threat. 
that people tend to believe that the best people for a job are people who come, came up just like them. Now, I'm the prototypical example of what, what success looks like in my field. And so if somebody else comes up that doesn't look like me, it doesn't have the same qualifications as I do, I feel like maybe they're just not really qualified. And you know, I worked for a black woman who was a vice president. And one of the attacks on Kamala Harris, you can say a lot of things about her. She's got high staff turnover. Sometimes she just, you know, she has funny words she has in her speeches. But people come after her as whether or not she's qualified. This is a woman who was a prosecutor, an assistant, uh, an attorney general of the largest state, um, you know, who was a senator or vice president. She's qualified, <laughs> right? But sooner or later, it just seems like the the the, the attack turns to this question of qualifications, particularly when it's about African-American women. Yeah, see, what do you say to that? That, you know, critics of how this has all gone down who are in Claudine Gay's corner will say, <clears throat> black women are subject to more scrutiny. They can't make mistakes that black men can make. Women can't make yeah. mistakes that men can make. Yeah. I think that's all true. And I... And Jamal knows this. I deeply respect him. He's really smart and he's a good friend. However, I think the fact that over the past couple of minutes, we've been talking about everything from DEI to Kamala Harris and breaking the glass ceiling means we haven't been talking about anti-Semitism. And it breaks my heart that her race is becoming the focal point over a resignation that had nothing to do with it. She was not being pressured to resign because she was black. I, I will remind you, Liz McGill at Penn, a white woman, resigned. Scott Bach, pressured to resign, a white man at Penn. Um, Sally Kornbluth, a white woman at MIT, is being pressured to resign. Again, not because of the racist right, but because everyone from the White House to Democrats to liberal academics have acknowledged there is a real problem here. And to me, while I think there are incredibly important conversations to be had about race and sexism, um, I think this particular one really diminishes the deep pain that Jewish Americans are feeling right now in the face of attacks on their college campuses where they no longer feel safe and in feeling like they don't have support or even like there is an indifference to their pain and that one-time allies have decided that they're no longer um, supporting them. So I just want to be very careful in this very complicated melange of stuff that's going on in here to remain focused on what is a, a really serious, deeply disturbing problem that was sort of awakened um, after the awful, horrific attacks by Hamas on October 7th. I see, I want to be careful too, because I think that's absolutely a very um, uh, good and, and, and insightful point. October 7th was hor was horrific, and I think all of us who watched it, most of us who watched it, felt like that was the case. There is anti-Semitism on campus. That is also something that's true. It didn't start October 7th, but it did get unveiled then. Some people at Harvard would say yeah. Claudine Gay was trying to find ways to reach out to students at Harvard, Jewish students at Harvard, although her testimony was lacking when she was in front of Congress. So I think that we have to, you know, that's all true. I think that the conversation that we were just having was a conversation about why even after we had the initial call for her resignation, the Harvard Corporation decided to keep her, why the attacks kept coming at her? Why did it keep coming? And I think that's the place where we have to wonder if race had something to do with that, that the attacks just sort of kept coming. And so um, while we all sort of recoil at what happened October 7th, 
I think we do have to also take a look at how it is we handle people that we disagree with and, and whether or not race influences how those people get handled in the American media. Jamal and Essie, thank you so much. It's such an important conversation to have, and I appreciate it. Thanks, Bree. A deadly airport runway inferno, two planes colliding in Tokyo, five on one plane killed, nearly 400 on another, miraculously making it out alive. How did this happen? The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. New images out tonight of the deadly plane crash that triggered an inferno on a Tokyo runway. The crash site may offer investigators some clues about what went wrong here. After Japan Airlines Flight 516 with nearly 400 passengers and crew on it collided, as you saw just there, with a Coast Guard plane, a Dash 8, at Haneda Airport. Some emergency doors were not functioning on the airliner, but the flight crew got all 367 passengers out as the cabin began to fill with smoke as you can see in this video. But at least five people on the smaller Coast Guard aircraft were killed. They were headed to help with relief efforts in the earthquake zone in western Japan. Joining me now are former FAA safety inspector David Susi and also former inspector general for the Department of Transportation, Mary Schiavo. Uh, David, air traffic control audio appearing to show that the Japan Airlines flight was cleared for landing. What do you think went wrong? What other questions do you have now? Well, the questions I have are the fact that we think that air traffic, they gave that clearance. Perhaps they gave clearance to the other aircraft as well. But what I, the question I have is, why did the air traffic controller not follow up on that? Air traffic controllers are extremely busy. Their jobs are extremely difficult. But to be able to say, I'm giving you clearance to do this, you need to also verify that the previous command that was given was followed out properly. If you say hold short of a runway, they need to go back and confirm that they did indeed hold short of the runway, not just get a verbal back from them. And I suspect that might be the part of what's going on here. It's a global issue. It's gone on, as we know, far too often in the United States in just the last few months. Meaning they should have asked if they actually held short? No, they could actually confirm where the aircraft is. You can say, hold short of the runway, but then you look to see, or you look visually on your screen to see where that aircraft is located. Mm. If it ekes out onto that airport, if it ekes out onto that runway, then you've got to tell that, you've got to reverse your command for uh, landing approval and tell them you need to make a go around and come back around a second time. But they obviously didn't do that. If they had done that, we wouldn't have seen a collision here. Really interesting there. Uh, Mary, we're getting these new images of the collision aftermath in Tokyo this morning. We can see them right here. What do you think investigators will be examining from the crash site? Well, from the crash site, in addition, they have to solve, of course, what went wrong and make recommendations so it doesn't happen again. But they're going to be looking at this plane and they will be aided by Airbus as to how did the plane uh, perform, how, what were the, uh, the, you know, the functions of the survivability factors, what was the flammability of the contents of the plane, of the seats, et cetera. 
and really looking for anything they can do to improve uh, survival safety in the future, as it has been improving over the last two decades. We have seen situations like this before where planes have been burned entirely, but uh, passengers have all gotten off or maybe other than one or two or three in the case of Asiana. But this is becoming more common that the plane will hold together and the flammability is better so you can get the passengers off. Yeah, it's really amazing. You look at these pictures and yet everyone on that flight survived. David, Miles O'Brien brought up an interesting point, which was that this is an aircraft, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that has a overlay that allows the pilots to not have to keep peering down at their instruments. And that part of this actually does, it, it gives some light within the cockpit or what they are seeing through the cockpit window. Is that something that could have gotten in the way of this Japan Airlines pilot team seeing what might have been in front of them? Or were they not going to have a chance seeing a little plane on the runway? Uh, They should be able to see a little plane on the runway. That's not an issue, even if the heads-up display is active. But at this point in the approach, it should not be active for at least one of the pilots. One of the pilots should have a clear view of what's going on outside at all times. So it shouldn't have interfered with that. If it was on, if it was an issue, it's one of the things like Mary said, what is it that they can do to prevent this from happening in the future? But um, I I don't see that as being a a contributing factor at this point, unless there was something wrong with how they used it. Mary, what are all the lessons that will be taken from this? This is what's so important and can be really life-saving for passengers and pilots and airplanes around the world. And that is that this was a tremendous warning call for the nation. Not only has the United States have a terrible problem with runway incursions, runway near misses. This last year was the highest in many years. It's on the rise. It's the one aviation statistic that is headed the wrong way. The International Civil Aviation Organization that looks at safety around the world says runway incursions and runway safety issues account for 60% of the aviation deaths. People should look at this accident, look very carefully and say, what do we need at all of our airports? You know, be it runway positioning information. We have systems we could put in the airport that would give the tower exact information and give the pilots and the air traffic controllers warnings when there's going to be runway incursions. This is a wake up call the world should heed because it could have been just terribly worse And it's an accident waiting to happen like this at airports all over America and all around the world. Yeah, they'll be lucky to learn this lesson uh, with this. So many people surviving. David, Mary, thank you to both of you. Thank you. you. At the helm of the NRA for decades, but Wayne LaPierre is now facing an ouster rooted in a corruption case. What we're learning tonight about the trial as jury selection begins. The longtime leader of the National Rifle Association, Wayne LaPierre, facing a lawsuit to essentially fire him. The New York Times reporting on a trove of details about New York AG Letitia James's attempt to remove LaPierre after decades at the helm of the controversial gun lobbying group. The lawsuit centers on allegations of corruption and financial mismanagement, including prosecutors say $40,000 Beverly Hills shopping sprees, another two hundred fifty grand on travel expenses to the Bahamas and Italy's Lake Como, among other destinations. 
all of this allegedly on the NRA's tab. LaPierre has argued his expenditures were all legitimate business expenses. With us now is CNN contributor and writer for The Trace, Jennifer Masia. Uh, Jennifer, thanks for being with us. There have been so many attempts to oust LaPierre as the face of the NRA. What makes this different? This could actually cost him his job. You know, this is not, you know, NRA executives standing near him. And, you know, he has fended off coup attempts uh, by dissident NRA members. This is something that um, the New York Attorney General says she can prove that LaPierre, as well as three other top executives, enriched themselves with funds that members thought they were donating to advocate for gun rights. And James alleges that they used as a personal piggy bank. Those are her exact words. So these are pretty damning allegations. And as we've seen through the Trace, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, a lot of the details have already been reported. Um, So she says that she can back this up with receipts. The NRA's power and its financial might, it's waned in recent years. Is it in danger of dissolving altogether, you think? Uh, James actually tried to get the NRA dissolved as part of this case. And the same judge that's presiding over this segment of the trial um, is uh, rejected that. So this is not going to be like a corporate death penalty for the NRA, but it could be the end of Wayne LaPierre as we know it. You know, for most Americans, he's the only voice of the NRA and the only face of the NRA that we've seen. He's, you know, the originator of the good guy with a gun line. And so, you know, this could end the NRA as we know it. But NRAism has basically been absorbed by the Republican Party. The Republican Party has made all of the NRA's asks part of their platform. So in a way, the NRA's over the decades has been mostly successful. And if it changed, streamlined or even ended tomorrow, um, you know, it's, it's basically done its job. As you said, it's been assimilated, certainly into the messaging and into the culture. Jennifer Masia, thank you so much for being with us. And thank you for joining us. CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillips starts now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.